Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I am Adam Powatic. The other co-host is sitting beside me, Aaron Cameron. And our guest today is John Newton. He's a partner of Taxation Services at KPMG. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me, guys. So today we're going to talk about some items that probably will get a little a little heady, a little deep. You're going to want to pay attention to what we're talking about. We're going to go through all the the proposed tax changes and how that can ultimately affect you know your real estate. So it is valuable information, but it is also complex. So at this point, I definitely want to. Try and shift it over to John because I think I run I run out of my knowledge. Yeah, yeah, and I want to make I want to make that that comment too that this will probably be the pod, the first podcast or maybe one of many that Adam and I have very limited knowledge on. So we will we will be the inquisitive minds just poking and asking questions, but we have very very limited understanding of yes. Yeah, so we're not pretending what the to be heck we're about to talk about. Yeah, so <laughs> hold on to the rope, follow along with us. John, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. So, so John, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in taxation in the first place? Yeah, sure. So I'm a CPA, Certified Professional Accountant. I've been practicing for almost two decades. I started in the tax group at KPMG back in the fall of 2000. We are at KPMG industry-focused. So I'm a, I'm a tax partner presently in the real estate group, and that's the group that I've always worked in. So we have over 100 people focused exclusively on the real estate sector, providing accounting, auditing services, and then within that, about 33 of us that are dedicated solely to tax advisory services, tax compliance services, dedicated to real estate companies. So you didn't graduate high school saying, you know what I want to do? I want to be a tax advisor. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't. I got into university and I was looking at different paths, maybe law, maybe business, but it sort of just evolved that I you know, got my undergraduate degree in arts, got into business, and then decided to... to pursue accounting. But then once I got down the accounting road a couple of years, I realized I wanted to sort of shift towards tax. And the thing about a tax career is lawyers provide tax services and accountants provide tax services. We both offer different skill sets. But for me, it was a nice mixture between sort of, you know, number crunching, but also interpreting legislation. And I've enjoyed it quite a bit. It's kept me focused for quite a while now. So how long have you been doing this? At KPMG, going on 18 years, I worked at a two smaller public accounting firms part of that. Both had a big tax focus as well. So almost two decades in in tax, really a lot of it, almost all of it exclusively focused on the real estate sector. So John did a uh, presentation for First National at our national sales conference a couple of weeks ago. One thing that, that caught me by surprise is you said this was the most significant proposed tax changes you've ever seen in your career. Yeah, absolutely. And that was that, I think that was that first week after Labor Day, right? right yeah. And that's really, I think, when it, it started to attract significant media People are attention. back from vacation, summer's over. Right. And all People of a sudden, have talked about it at summer barbecues in the cottage and, and what have you. And, and we came back, you know, everyone came back to business. And around that time, Mr. Morneau, the finance minister, had put out an article in the Globe and Mail reaffirming their commitment to these these proposed changes, which we'll talk about, which were originally introduced back in July. Mm. And it started to get a lot of attention. So when, when I was speaking with your group, I, yeah, I talked about the significance of these changes and, and think maybe some of you were sort of surprised by that. But but there's no question. I talked to my colleagues that have been in the tax advisory business longer than me, and no one has lived through anything quite like this. I don't know if the public's really grasping that as well. I mean, there's definitely a significant backlash that you can see, you know, mostly online. But I don't know if 
the general public really grasps how significant a lot of these changes are. I mean, we'll, we'll go over it today and it'll probably highlight how difficult it is to understand what it really means. When you really dig into it, it is a huge shift. Yeah, it's a big shift and it's affecting, you know, it's affecting business owners mm. uh, and, and other types of people that are incorporated. You know, definitely it's going to have a significant impact on them. And listen, I think we'll talk about it, but certainly what the government's trying to do, I think they believe it and they are, they're, making many of these changes on, on the basis that it's going to create a more f- fair tax system for everybody. But obviously the term fair is, is subjective and what one person considers fair, another person might not. And a lot of people, as you've probably been reading in that last month since we met back that first week of September, a lot of people have been publicly talking about why they think there are some issues with these proposals that may have a an unfortunate impact on the Canadian economy. And the debate rages on right now. To understand what the changes are proposing, you kind of have to understand where we are today. So why don't you talk about sort of the evolution of taxes and what what exists right now? Yeah, for sure. So when I got into the business, and when I'm from out east originally, but when I got working up here in Ontario, it was about 1999. Around that time, the corporate tax rate that an Ontario corporation would pay on its active active business earnings was about 42%, okay? And the highest marginal rate that an individual would pay on their earnings of any form, could be investment income, employment income, business income, what have you, that was 46%. So there was a small delta between those two rates, 42 versus 46. Over that time, the Canadian federal government and to some extent in the Ontario provincial government as well, and some of the other provincial governments throw Canada have made an effort to bring the corporate rate significantly down in an effort to help drive the Canadian economy and and create you know hopefully create more jobs by making Encur- it easier encourage for entrepreneurs small business you know that kind of thing. absolutely yeah. and competing Ab- with other jurisdictions that are doing the same no question a, no question right yeah. and it's, it's a bit of an international game so to speak right? for sure it is and that's relevant to this discussion we should touch on that given what's going on in the U.S. these days but. Presently, we're at a corporate tax rate, combined federal Ontario corporate tax rate on business income of 26.5% here in Ontario. And in, you know, and it's come down across the board through all the provinces. So just just do the math, that's from 42 to 26. 40, so, yeah, 26 so, and a half, yeah. So down, down 16.5%. Absolutely, absolutely. On the corporate side. Correct. Now, personal tax rates stayed relatively stable for, for many years, until about five years ago. And we started to see some rate hikes in Ontario. So the top marginal combined rate between federal and Ontario went from 46.4 up to 49, 49 and a half. And then when the, the last change of the federal government, the new liberal government increased the highest marginal rate. And I'm talking the highest marginal rate here yeah. for individuals. So, so that, those individuals making the most amount of money is about, right. above 200,000? 200,000, that's right. So the rate now, after a four-point rate hike on the federal income tax side, brought the combined Ontario provincial or federal Ontario rate up to 53.5%. Hmm. So we've gone from 46 personally and 42 corporately so a delta, to- a delta of 4% to, to now a delta of- do the almost math in my head, almost 25 to 30 percent. Yeah, yeah, 53 and a half versus 26 and a yeah. half. So that's a significant difference. So that's how we've evolved here. And to some extent, maybe that wasn't quite intentional. But on the other hand, it was, you know, it's a series of decisions that various governments made federally and provincially. And this is the tax system that we have today. So, so notionally, then, if I maybe playing devil's advocate. So what the what the the liberal government is trying to do is a good thing, trying to bring it back in line of, of historically where where it was. Well, 
I, I could see someone taking that view for sure. Is that, not, is that not presumably where what their stance is? Why my Morneau is so so steadfast that I don't you know he's really saying you can't make an argument to convince me otherwise. This is what we're doing, right? Right. Well, he he's saying what's happened now is we've got a system that's that's somewhat unfair. Okay, because of these these vast differences between the rates and. Most importantly, he's saying, look, the op- the opportunity to incorporate and earn business income, that's available to some people, but it's not available to all people. It's certainly not available to employees. Mm-hmm. So an employee works at First National or elsewhere is going to, at the top, if they're earning income at the top marginal rate, will be paying 53.5% on, on their dollar that they're earning, their incremental dollar. Whereas the business owner is in, who's incorporated that person would pay the lower rate of tax and you, uh, on the same agree, income. Oh, sorry, and do you agree that that is an offset for the risk inherent in running your own business? Do you buy into that argument that that would be one of the reasons that you would see a difference? Well, I, I think when this got announced, and it's, I think a lot of people were making that point, Adam. What happened is the finance department itch, issued on July 18th this this draft legislation for some of these rules we'll talk about, and a and a document backing up the rationale for what they're proposing. And they, they spoke to this rate differential being fundamental to one of the key changes that they want to do. And they said, look, that's not, that's not fair. We're, we're, we're okay with a corporate corporation carrying on a business, paying that corporate rate of tax. And if they reinvest their retained earnings, their profits back into their business, they'll continue to pay that corporate rate of tax of 26.5% in Ontario on their business earnings. But once they set aside some of that capital and use it for passive investment purposes, perhaps to fund a retirement, for instance, then we think there's an inequity between those after-tax earnings that the corporation has versus the person working who's an employee and who's going to be taxed at a much higher rate. Before we go any deeper, just do you want to talk about the different provinces? I mean, certainly we're we're, we're Ontario centric, clearly, but you know, are there are there major change differences, or or can we just generally blanket this across the province, across the country, saying in most provinces or all provinces that delta four percent historically to now what is so twenty seven percent or twenty four percent that is more or less the case across that's the country. Re- that's relatively in line across okay. the country. within a few okay. percentage points of For each sure. other. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So every province it has some variances. Mm-hmm. Let's acknowledge that but for the most part yeah they've all gone in that direction where it's much much less tax rate for the corporations and increased yes. tax rate for the individual yeah that's right okay. and just again didn't really answer your question there but i think some people made the point that there are significant differences between a corporation carrying on business and a person who's who has incorporated and conducted their business in through the corporation that they perhaps are entitled to the ability to legitimately so to reinvest some of these earnings inside their corporation to fund a retirement because they don't have some of the other benefits that an employee would have. They don't have employment insurance. They don't have employment rights legislation that working in their favor. They don't have pension plans provided by an employer. So those are all legitimate differences. And that's, I think, relevant to the discussion. Do you have a sense of the the, the proportionate population proportion that fall under each of these categories, like what are we talking about? People that are incorporated that are earning their income through corporations, and what 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 percentage of the population is that? Is that five percent of the population, or is it fifty percent of the population? Well, I, okay, so I don't have the stat with me, but in the paper that they put out back in the summer, they made the point that look, since the last rate hike where we went from forty nine and a half to fifty three and a half here in Ontario, I mean, it was a four percent federal right. rate hike. There was a slew of people incorporating. So what's happening there, and quite honestly, I'm one of those people. Some of us, if you're a 
say, a partner in, in mm-hmm. an accounting firm or a law firm or another type of firm, and you're legally a member of a partnership, you had a legitimate opportunity there to incorporate your partnership interests and pay the lower rate of corporate tax. Mm-hmm. That option's not available to everyone, certainly not available to an employee, as we've discussed. The concept there, the reason for doing that is all, it's only really beneficial if you're able to accumulate some profit in your corporation and set it aside for passive investment purposes. So I think they they saw this happening and they realized that given the vast discrepancy in the rates that we talked about, they need to do something to sort of curb this behavior because they see it as being counterproductive. Right. Again, playing devil's advocate, I suspect what they're saying or they're looking at is, and I'm just going to throw absolute guest numbers out there, but it's probably something like 85% of the population falls under that sort of personal category as employees that are earning their income in that structure, in that corporate structure, and 15% of the population. Was that, do you think that's, that's general? Oh, and the overall. The overall, just, yeah, just, just, you know, there's 35 or 40 million people in Canada. So how many fall under that incorporated, you know, tax rate versus fall under just the individual tax rate? Sure. No, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. I think I saw a number. There's something tens of thousands of, of incorporate corporations across right. the country. So it really is so a small it, proportion of the population at large. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the data set in this room would be Aaron and I would be in one category and you would be in the other. Well, absolutely. So uh, <laughs> that's right. And yeah. that's that. So that's an interesting discussion, right? Because a partner in, in an accounting firm or law firm might be viewed differently by the general public than, say, a doctor, who also might be viewed differently than, say, a, a business owner who is creating a couple dozen jobs yeah. in a, through a small business. So. It's it's you can see the challenge that the government has when they say, look, it's we think the, the rate difference has created behavior that we don't want to continue, but they it's hard for them to group everybody it together. Group. So yeah. that gets that becomes a dangerous game. So they come out with sort of a, a new concept that's you know applicable to all corporations, but it may not be appropriate. People would say in all circumstances. Yeah, the, the, uh, the doctor has been quite vocal about their opposition, especially given their earning potential down in the states and the potential sure. for a brain drain here. Yeah, no, I've, I've, uh, I don't have any doctor clients, but I, I have some friends and family members, and various people have, have made that point. And you know, they, they do face, I think they face caps on their earnings in, in various provinces, right? Mm-hmm. So they're somewhat restricted on what they're able to earn. But many felt that this, some of the tax planning that they were able to achieve through their corporation was part of sort of that quote unquote the deal with the government that made it palatable to them. And when this is taken away from them, then it becomes a real issue where many of the small I'm from a small town, like if doctors start to leave that area and people can't get the service adequate, they need. Adequate they, medical you know, support. So yeah. I mean when they raise those points publicly, I think people are sympathetic largely to that. Yeah. So do you wanna do you wanna get into it? Sure. Let's, okay. Let's do it. So income sprinkling is is the number one. And and I the articles that I've read you know, typically people kind of just gloss over this and say, no, this makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. I kind of understand why the government would want to do this. But why don't you explain what it is and, and give us some background? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So what, one common structure that we would see for a, a private owner of a private corporation who's carrying on a business is we would often see if, if the business started to have some success and there's a potential for it to grow in the future, it, it would often be advisable for the sort of the principal shareholder of the company, the driving force behind the company, to do an estate freeze. And typically, the typical planning would be that person would exchange their growth, common growth shares of the company for fixed value preferred shares, such that any further appreciation in value won't accrue on those shares. They would then issue common shares, which would be entitled to the future growth and value of the company. 
to usually to a family trust. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then behind the family trust, they would name anyone that they ever thought they might want to benefit from profits of the corporation, you know, spouses, children, could be could be even more broad, even other relatives. Yeah, well, I don't, I can't remember the language, but it's future children, right? You can yeah. put language in there that's basically their anybody issue. that's their issue. Yeah, their yeah, issue. yeah, 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 yeah. John Smith and their issue, right? Absolutely. Anybody that John Smith, you know, has children or grandchildren, they end up falling under this structure there you as go. well. Yeah. And can you go to as far as you know, second cousins, or is there a limit on family trusts? You or? can, you can, you can name anyone you want as a beneficiary. Okay. There's no, that's there's nothing that would stop you. Now, the, the trust structure had a few advantages. It, it allowed future growth to accrue to these other people that were the beneficiaries behind the trust. It allowed the business owner, who's now holding the preferred shares, to appoint a trustee who they trust to govern distributions of profits paid to the trust in the future. It allowed the preferred shareholder, the original owner of the business, to have voting control of the corporation. And then on, on, if we get into the tax planning, when profits are paid through the trust to the, to the individual beneficiaries, they would potentially benefit from lower tax rates on the, on the income distributed to them than the original owner would have paid. And that's because oftentimes, if it's the classic case would be, say, a spouse who doesn't work, may get allocated income and not have any other earnings, and therefore the first 200000 or so of income could be taxed at a lower rate than it would have been had it been paid to the, to the original owner. When I started in the business, it was, this was a common, still a common structure, mm-hmm. but it was very, very common because in those days, even children could be allocated income. With, and I think it was maybe in those days, 30000 You could pay $30,000 of dividend to all your children and they wouldn't have to pay any tax. So it was a way to get money tax. So if, you're, if you've got four kids and you're earning $120,000 through this structure, you distribute that $30,000 each of those kids and you effectively get that cash that, tax-free. Yeah, that's right. And then you're, the kids earn that income and effectively give it, put it back mm-hmm. into the family cofers so everybody mm-hmm. can use it to, to spend or whatever sure, the, whatever the structure is. Sure, absolutely. Or you yeah. could, you know, it could be reinvested in the business if necessary. Right. So that the first big change that happened, legislation change that happened in my career was the kitty, introduction of the kitty tax. And that was in 2000. And they said, look, the government at the time said, if you're going to pay dividends to children, if they're 18 or younger, then any income they get allocated from your company, from your business, they're going to pay tax at the highest marginal rate. So like starting with dollar one at the highest yes, marginal rate? absolutely. Okay. So, so it really took, took that away. It took that, took that away. So what's happening now is they are extending these income splitting rules more broadly. So they don't just apply to children 18 or younger. They apply to anyone who's any sort of relative to the, my example, the business owner that receives income through either directly from the corporation or through this trust structure that I've talked about, but, and doesn't make a meaningful contribution to the business. So if they're purely just a passive shareholder receiving incomes, they're going to then pay tax on the highest marginal rate. So again, the classic example is the stay-at-home spouse who has no involvement in the business. Has no involvement in the business. That person may have other responsibilities. So now that starting 2018 onward, they will pay the highest marginal rate on their earnings. So I I guess you have to make that spouse a property manager or in in the instance of real estate, give them some sort of title, give them a business card, put them on the payroll. I mean, of course it should be, it 
should absolutely be legitimate, of course. Yeah, of course. Is, is Aaron talking about tax avoidance or tax evasion right <laughs> no, now? No, 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 no. But I, I'm just, I'm, I mean, again, from a real estate perspective, we, we see this often. I and mean, mm-hmm. there are a lot, of, a lot of property owners that have this sort of structure sure. that are looking for ways, okay, well, how do I, how do I manage, yeah. my, manage my taxes? Right. So the wife, in this particular, the spouse, shows up once a week to, to okay. help move something, move, you know. Sure. So that, I don't know, right? That, I, what's that, the solution? Yeah, so that probably on the surface we described isn't, isn't appropriate and it wouldn't be acceptable, but it gets to a, it gets to a fair discussion, which is these rules say, look, we, you can still distribute and still do income splitting if the person is making a reasonable contribution yeah, quote unquote to the company. Reasonable. Right. right. And, and so what we don't know what that means. This is one area of the, of the rules where they've, they've left it very vague. And when I say they, I mean the finance department and it will be up to the Canada revenue agency. If this is ultimately enacted into law, It'll be up them up to the CRA to referee and interpret this legislation. And so, tax lawyers to then step in to argue sure, the counterpoint. Absolutely. Yeah. And many of it, law like this is the type of thing that could, over the course of time, be settled in the courts, right? Uh, to your point. Through, through case law. Right. Yeah. And then, and you know, you could see cases going to the Supreme Court. And then we oftentimes, and something like this, a, the judge would come back with sort of, here's the governing principles you need to look at, and we would and all follow that going forward. But surely a precedent is set right. for what is yeah. reasonable efforts That's or right. reasonable work to right. the company. Yeah, so what finance has said, look, is reasonable could mean, did that person put in some money for the shares on day one? And if they grow in value and the, the company's a huge success, well, if they put in a meaningful amount of money on day one, then they're entitled to their profits. They're entitled to a, what they call a supersized return on their investment. But that's generally not the case, because generally, as I described, the shares are issued for no value, right? They're not worth anything at that time, so people aren't really paying for them. Mm-hmm. So the other thing is our, the reasonable contribution could be you know, showing up in the office and doing legitimate work, work. right? And Attending meetings. Attending. <laughs> right. uh, some sort of decision-making. Sure. Right? Obviously, it, 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 it gets important, people going down that path, it's important that the person be legitimately serving a role in the company contributing making a legitimate contribution so but of course the thing i wonder about is well is that encouraging is that not in a way encouraging some degree of nepotism like is that not encouraging mm. the business owner to have their spouse and their children working for the company when maybe there's someone more appropriate or more qualified and it's pretty murky as well determining mm. what a reasonable amount of work is for sure so so absolutely and that's going to be that's a great point and that is going to be something that's certainly something that people are frustrated with and that was one of KPMG's comments in our submission that we recently filed is that it's important that there be more clarity around what they are intending to do here did you have enforcement agents spying on companies? It's uh, how does that play out? Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, it becomes it becomes difficult, right? For for comp- for the CRA puts the CRA, I think, in a difficult position to assess what is reasonable and what isn't, and how to monitor it. Absolutely, yeah. interesting. Absolutely. So, do you want to move on to the next one? Or do you have any more comments no, on the income sprinkling? That's really the concept here that they're getting yeah. at with with income sprinkling. They're extending those rules to any other family members that are making a contribution. Okay. 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 So next on the list, there's four. Just for those that are keeping score at home, and the and the last one is the one that really yeah. Applies, so we're going right? to try to rush the last one. Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> Curbing the tax free capital gains yeah. on qualified property. Given they have a re- real estate audience here, and you know my clientele and my business that I do is all with real estate. I can tell you that this, this is not a big one for the real estate sector. Okay. Corporations that I come into you know, contact with, they are usually holding passive real estate, could be office buildings, property buildings, what have you, or they might be conducting real estate, speculative real estate development in them. But the actual real estate owning entities, the shareholders of those entities would very rarely ever qualify 
for the lifetime's capital lifetime capital gains exemption. But, but what it but what it is just yeah. Could you give an elevator sure. pitch on yeah. just thirty I'll, seconds I'll on talk what this is? Yeah. Sure. And just before I get into where it could apply in your world is for a real estate services company, a property manager or asset manager, what have you, that has various shareholders. If if the actual services business is sold, and if the services business is conducted largely in Canada, then capital gains on the on the sale of those shares could qualify for this. So what it what it allows for is under the current number, it's the first eight hundred and thirty five thousand dollars of capital gain realized by a shareholder on the sale of the shares of that company is not subject to any tax. Hmm. Okay. Now the eight the eight thirty five is indexed for inflation, so it will go up over time. Year over year. Yeah. Right. So so if we go back to the trust structure we talked about where the business owner issued named 10 different beneficiaries. I mean, that's probably a high example. Let's say five different beneficiaries being the family members of that person's family. When the trust, if the trust were to sell the shares of the corporation, let's say it's a real estate property mm-hmm. management company, the capital gain could be allocated out to each of those five member, members. And each of those people, even the minor children under 18, would benefit from the $835,000 capital gains exemption. And this is one where they're saying, we don't consider that to be fair. So effectively, the new rules will, will aggregate it such that only one member of a family would be able to qualify for the capital gains exemption. Of that 835 right. number. Yeah, are fact, they proposing to change the number? Or they're, they're gonna- well, that, will, that will continue. That's, that was enacted in law years ago that it will continue to accrue and the, the, it will continue to increase through inflation. Okay. The, whatever the inflation but it's just rate. that distribution through the, through, is it just through trust or through any No, it, it, whether structure? it's through trust or through. So, so now in the future, sorry, the trust planning doesn't work. So it actually has to be a sale of shares by an individual. Hmm. So, and again, it really effectively gets aggregated. It's only effectively a person making a meaningful, it's, it goes to the concept of, is a person making a meaningful contribution to the business? So in the classic example, it would, they would not, it would only be the one typically. So only that one person gets the capital gains exemption. Would that not, would that not be applicable on the sale of a property? No, it would. This and is, why not? This rule only applies to sales of what we call small business corporations. But really, if you look at sale of shares of small business corporations, if you look at that rule under the tax act, it's businesses carrying on active businesses, primarily in Canada and they have certain uh, asset holding requirements that they have. And passive, we've always been of the view that passive assets such as depreciable real estate would not qualify for as a good asset for that company. So that's why we never see, that's why we very rarely ever see Would Canadian- it be applicable if it was a retirement home or a storage facility or some of those sort of you know asset classes? The real estate asset classes that are but, more of an operational sure. component to it that but, you could argue in theory that's more of a business than than a passive real estate investment? Potentially. But one of the other reasons we see this not applying very often in Canada is the buyer of this business, you just the seniors business that you just described, they always have under the Canadian rules a strong preference to buy the actual real estate because they're able to step up the depreciable basis of the Mm-hmm. Real estate that they're buying up to their fair value at the rather time. than buying shares of the right. corporation so, that's operating the business. Market. Yeah, so if they buy the shares, they have to carry the real estate at the historical cost, so they'll get a lower depreciation. Right. So it's it's you rarely seldom seen. to see. Yeah, yeah. and okay. also oftentimes on the on the big big real estate transactions, like an eight hundred thirty five thousand dollar capital gains exemption is almost in some cases it's 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 irrelevant. Material, right? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, if you were to, under these old rules, if you were able to multiply it ten times, then maybe it's more if you meaningful. Had, if you had fifteen hundred shareholders or sure. whatever it was, yeah. but it's 
doesn't doesn't yeah. make a big difference. Okay, anything else on that comment, John? Or? No, I think that that's one where for your clientele, I just don't see it being a highly relevant Great. Okay. change. On to the next one then. The next one is conversion of dividends to capital gains and surplus stripping. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Okay, so when we talk about surplus stripping, that refers to taking surplus, i.e. profits or retained earnings, out of a corporation into the shareholder's hands personally. So as we just discussed, corporate rates are quite low. So the challenge or, or the hope for many of these shareholders of these corporations that have paid a relatively low, I would say fair rate of corporate tax is I want to get that money out so I can do something with it. Maybe I want to buy a house, maybe I want to go on vacation, what have you. How do I do that tax efficiently? So if they are, let's assume they're a person at the highest marginal rate here in Ontario. If they withdraw that as a taxable dividend, they're going to be taxed anywhere from 39% to 45%. Depends on the character of the underlying profits. Oftentimes, if they've earned business income, then when the dividend is taken out, it's taxed the 39%. But that gets to a relatively high, fully integrated tax rate. Yeah, compared to the personal of, of what is 53. Right, it's so not, it's, it's a touch higher than that. Yeah. It's about 55 when you, okay. do the, when you do the math. So that's not a rate people are happy about. So, the, so when you say surplus stripping, is well, how else can I get my, my profits out of the company? So one way to do that that's more tax efficient is if the, rather than if we structure an arrangement where rather than take a taxable dividend from the company, what if, what if the shareholder was able to somehow create a capital gain either on the transfer of the shares, say to another family member, and pay a capital gains rate? So let's just follow that. And, and the surplus would travel with the shares. Yeah. The- so, let's, so let's say a person had shares, gone up in value, wanted, they want to withdraw $100,000 from the company, they could, and they own you know, many, many shares of their company, they could transfer $100,000 worth of shares to another person, another family member, realize a capital gain of that. The capital gain would be taxed at the lower, at the lower rate. Taxable, uh, capital gains effectively are taxed at about 27%. Now, in what I just described, transferring to another family member, that comes that's always come with a lot of issues, and there are existing rules that effectively prevent that. So it can't be two spouses. Let's say it's just you know a husband and a wife that own this asset. Sure. Of just share, just keep flipping shares back and forth and mm-hmm. earning capital gains. Like that's clearly no, illegal. That that doesn't work under the existing yeah. rules. But where where there was a significant opportunity, and we don't know if it's going to continue or not, but it, it seems like it will not. But for real estate clients in particular, if the, if the inside the company, if they had assets that had materially increased in value that they're able to internally trigger a gain on. So say your client had a, an apartment building that had gone up in value. Let's say it got up in value millions of dollars, but they, wanted, they only want to pull out $100,000 of capital gain. They could transfer the property to an underlying entity on a partial tax rollover basis. So they could form a new company or, or maybe a partnership, for instance, transfer the asset they would qualify for a certain rollover rule under the Tax Act, trigger a partial gain. In this example, we'll say it's $100,000. And the company is now taxed on $100,000 of capital gain. Well, capital gains, are, are, as I think we all know, are only 50% subject to tax in Canada. Mm-hmm. So that, there's two good things about that. Only 50% subject to tax. The other good thing is for a private company, like the ones we're talking about here, the other 50%, the non-taxable portion of the capital gain, goes into something we call the capital dividend account. So to the extent a private corporation has a capital dividend account balance, they're able to pay a tax-free dividend up to a Canadian resident shareholder without there being any tax at the shareholder level. Hmm. Hmm. So that was that is that type of planning, which 
was considered to be legitimate and, and very much allowable within the scope of the rules seems to be something that will not be permissible going forward if these rules are enacted as they've, as they've said they will be. So that's, that's a situation where some surplus stripping has been somewhat curtailed. So again, just to follow that through, the, the capital gain that the corporation would have paid effectively would have been taxed at about a 27% rate. And that's prefer, preferential to the person who take, had taken a 39% taxable dividend from the company. What about for estate planning? If the transfer of shares were designed to pass real estate on to the next generation, is that a common method? And would that be applicable in the situation? Or is there different laws that apply to estate planning? No, estate and, and, and definitely some of this surplus stripping planning was done in an estate planning context. Absolutely. There was a strategy called the, called the pipeline strategy where if the shareholder passed away, there's a deemed capital gain at that time. When, when we all pass away, there's a deemed disposition and, and capital gain on the accrued value, appreciated value of all our underlying assets. That's just to the, unless they were left to, a, to, a, to the spouse. Right. And then, but when the spouse passes away, the gains would ultimately be taxable. So there was some planning that was available called the pipeline planning, which effectively allowed, well, so let me just follow that through. So the capital gain that is realized on death happens at the shareholder level. It doesn't in any way step up the underlying basis of any appreciated value inside the, the company. So there was always a double tax concern that, so shareholder pays taxes on death and then a taxable, let's say there's this desire to sell the, sell the underlying assets of the company. They're sold, taxes paid inside the corporation, and, and a dividend's paid up to the shareholder or the, to their state, I should say. It's also taxed. It's, a very, it's also taxed. It's, it's a very effect, high rate of tax. Right. So a strategy called the pipeline effectively allowed the basis of the gain that was realized on death to be used as a way to tax efficiently extract the, the underlying profits of the company to the estate. Right. So, so that seems to be no longer an option going forward under these new rules. It, Based on this this conversion Based, of dividends to capital gains, they'll convert yeah, it back right. to to a dividend, right? Hmm. So, so again, these are these are draft rules that they've brought in. We know what they're trying to achieve is they've done gone to great lengths to try and explain what they deem to be inappropriate here. And what they're saying here is, look, the reality is, if you're pulling money out of a corporation, you should be taxed as a dividend, not as a capital gain. Right. That's that's the intent here. So we've created some rules to make sure that happens, but then. You know, when you draft this legislation, it's it's very very difficult for the Department of Finance to do this, and sometimes they can overshoot the mark, and you can have unintended consequences. So that you probably have heard in the press talk about, you know, the classic example is uh, intergenerational transfers of farms mm-hmm. from from one generation to the next, and how that under the new rules could be taxed at this taxable dividend rate of say forty five percent. As opposed to a capital gain rate at say twenty-five to seventy-five percent or twenty-five, twenty-seven percent. So the example that gets pointed out is well, you're creating a situation where the estate of the business owner is going to be in a better position to sell the shares to an arms length person rather and get a capital than, gain than to a non-arms length right, person. Give it, then give it to their son or, that, or whatever. That's yeah. right. So anyway, this is an it's an important thing that to be discussed, and I think there's been a lot of submissions making points like this, and it would be interesting to see what the final legislation reads, how it reads, and, and whether they want to allow for sort of some intergenerational transfers to occur 
at capital gains rates. You know, it's getting nasty. There was something on in recently where a conservative critic was basically saying the liberals are calling farmers tax cheats, and you know, I can't believe that you know he was making some comment that these liberals are you know anti-farmers, and you know that this legislation is you know effectively going to you know cause an entire sort of disruption of the farming industry and you know that they're they're calling it loopholes and that farmers are using these loopholes and you know it's just it was it's getting nasty now right i think it i think the tone a lot of a lot of it has gotten nasty and and i don't mean to single out no but that's a good example right because there's there's a sentimental no we don't want to we don't want to have a negative impact on farming it's a lot easier to tax perceived multi-millionaire business people than it is to attack farmers and just well that's it right it's it's got it's got that notional sort of negative impact, right? Yeah, so no, absolutely. And I, I think there's been a lot of nastiness in, in the press and there's been a lot of confusion and some of these topics are are difficult difficult to get into. But at the same time, someone could point at a legitimate issue like this and say, is that really fair? Is that really what we're trying to achieve? And here? could you see the, the the government carving out certain industries saying, okay, fair, well, we we're going yeah. to continue with this, you know, uh, reversion of, of capital gains to dividends, but that doesn't apply to farmers. I think that could happen. There already are some tax rules in the act that are particularly favorable to farmers in particular. So it'd be interesting. I, I think it would be a relatively easy thing for them to car- be carved out of this particular tax change that we're talking about. But then the question is, okay, well, what about dairy farmers and chicken farmers, farmers or sure. whatever? Like, or how, the, where do you draw the line? Or, or marijuana car- farmers or, under the new legislation. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, so, that's yeah. right. That's right. Or the doctors, for instance. Yeah. And so it gets a little bit tricky. I, I, I could see them if they confine it to farmers, I think they'd be relatively safe because that's consistent with what's happened in the past. Mm-hmm. But other lobby, there's a lot of lobby groups out there s- suggesting that some of these changes are not appropriate for their particular people. Yeah, these aren't people making millions and millions of dollars off mm-hmm. of off yeah. real estate. These are hardworking individuals mm-hmm. trying to make men, ends meet. That's right. Right. That's right. And well, just on the tone, like, I mean, the paper that came out in the summer from the finance department did some of the language was was surprising to tax professionals because they talked about some of in, some of the inappropriate things, to use their word, that had been done to save taxes. And much of what we just described here, and this classic example of the trust, that was well-accepted tax planning that that had been blessed by the finance department, by the courts, by the CRA for years. And to suggest that people took advantage of opportunities available to them, to suggest that that's was inappropriate. I think rubbed some people the wrong mm-hmm. way. So the conversation probably started on yeah. the, got off on the wrong foot. What well, kind of was presented, at least it seemed to the media, as there are these loopholes that people are taking advantage yeah. of. Yeah, and that that one really struggles. I struggle with that because, like, I spend my days reading the Tax Act, and every now and then you you see you see a loophole. And to me, a loophole is an unintended result. You, clearly, there's a spirit to a particular rule that's designed to do something. But oh, if you read it in this way, maybe there's an argument that it doesn't apply. But then in our profession, especially these days, more so than in the past, we we apply a very common sense approach, and we, we're very respectful of what the spirit is of the intent of the legislation. Even though the actual, you make it, you may fall into you a loophole. Interpret right. it differently, right? Yeah. But but you know, the fifty three and a half percent and the twenty six and a half percent these are these are rate fundamental rate changes that happened over time, decisions made by the government. That is that a loophole? That's just the system that we have. It's probably imperfect, and probably to some extent, some of these things do need to be changed as part of broader tax reform. But I, I didn't appreciate 
seeing them described as loopholes. Right. Not that we are Facebook friends, but I actually did go on a small rant on that very topic not, not too long ago because the word loophole implies something underhanded and shady as that connotation to it. And you're talking about very defined tax structures that were put out there for a specific purpose. And yeah, a loophole is insulting to anybody that is just playing within the rules do it to a to an advantage. Sure, I, yeah. I I I agree. I agree. So, but you know, and then some of some of the some of the things we talked about, you know. The person who put five beneficiaries behind their trust, and you say a two-year-old child getting an eight hundred thirty-five thousand dollars capital gains exemption, I can see, I can see why a reasonable person may say that's not how our tech system should operate, and perhaps that's something that we should look at changing. Which they uh, did. Which they're in the or process the of doing. doing right. 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 So a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Last but not least, the one that everybody's been waiting for. Yes. Holding passive investments in private corporations. So okay. why don't you explain what that yeah. means? So I think I think we're halfway there right now in the understanding. So if we go to our example of let's say the 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 private business owner, that person earns a hundred thousand dollars more than let's say more than they need. Okay. In in their corporation, and they don't they've got a they would pay a, it's from business earnings. And then let's say, let's pretend they're not even at the small business rate. Let's say they're, pat, they're taxed at the 26.5% rate. Okay? We didn't talk about the fact that there's a smaller business rate that at around 15% that people can pay on the first $500,000 of income. Let's if, they say quali- that, if they qualify as a small if, business. If they qualify as a small business, right. But again, I don't see it often in, in real estate because that rate is only, is only available to companies of a certain size. Right. So let's say they're pay, they pay the 26.5% rate on their $100,000. So they've got $73,500 left. And we'll say they don't need to reinvest it in the business. They can set it aside either as a we're calling a rainy day fund or look at just for my retirement. Mm-hmm. That's my retirement, but I'm going to invest it. But then you compare that person to someone working at a company and they make a hundred thousand more than they need that they're able to set aside for investment. Their tax at the highest marginal rate of 53 and a half percent. So they're, they're starting with a lower base of capital. 47,000 versus $73,000 right. to invest. Right. right. So that's, that's where finance is saying that's not fair. We want those two people to be on equal footing from a tax perspective. We've talked about why they're not on an equal footing for other reasons, mm-hmm. employment insurance, employment benefits. Benefits, et cetera. Okay. So the concept here is they're, they're trying to equalize between the two. So okay. they're, they're effectively going to dramatically increase the tax rate on the investment income earned by the corporation because the capital was used from dollars, earnings that were taxed at the lower rate. So the concept is by dramatically increasing the, the tax rate on the investment income over time, you will equalize the two people such that they have the the earnings on the passive in, income inside the corporation after tax will equal what conceptually what the an individual would have got yeah. as an employee. And, and so, how do you do that? Well, you do that by getting you know introducing effective tax rates of seventy percent in some cases more, and that you know that is something that's gotten a lot of discussion mm-hmm. in, in the media as we've talked about. Can you give an example? Let's say like a real estate example. So, so would it be typically on the on a, a refinance that they would get? You know, I want, I'm a property owner. You know, my property is appreciated in value. I've got low debt, so I'm gonna I'm gonna refinance my asset and take out some money through through financing. Well, we, so we should talk about refinancing because refinancing is often a very tax effective way to acquire capital. Can you say and that one more a- time, please? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you where I'll tell you where the rules would apply again in our in our real estate context. Yeah. So so let's say you've you've got a client who's a developer, and certainly the, there's been a condo boom in, in Toronto, and they they've you know they put money into a condo project, and perhaps they have others on the go, but they make some money on on one of their their condo projects, and 
provide housing, I guess, for, for people. So let's say they've got $100,000 that they don't, they don't want to put into more the next development. speculative real estate investment because they're already got a lot of, they're living with a lot, these people live with yeah. a lot of risk. So they've, they've, they've built the property, they've sell, sold the units, yeah. they're sitting on a whole bunch of cash inside sure. the company. Right. How so, do they get access to that cash? Yeah, so, I mean, if they personally want to take the cash, they can avail themselves of the taxable dividend regime that we talked about and pull the dividend out at 39%. But perhaps they're not in a hurry to do that. Perhaps they want to keep the capital in the company because they may need it for the business in the future. Or maybe they just say, look, I'm going to just build up an investment portfolio in that company. And maybe down the road, if I need it, I can take it out then. But I don't want to pay the extra 39% of tax right now. I'd rather keep it in the company and invest it. That's a classic example where the, the new rules, as we if they are enacted or introduced, and let's talk about that in a sec, they would jack up the tax rate drastically on that investment income that that person earns. Through the company. Through the company, right. In the company. So the company itself would pay a rate of tax of, say, 50%, and then it would be another potentially all-in, about a 70% rate when the money is withdrawn to the, to the individual. To the individual. Now, let's, one thing we should clarify about this is the first three things we talked about, those were all introduced as draft legislation. So, you know, we actually have the actual words that, that will show up in the Tax Act. We, they, they've been shared with us. They may be tweaked. They may, mod, they may be modified. I think to some extent, it's inevitable to be certain changes. I don't know. We don't know to, to what degree. For this tax re- new tax regime for passive in- income earned by a private corporation, that was not introduced as legislation. That was put forward as 10 pages in, in the finance paper of, okay, here's where we see there's an issue, and here's a few different ways we could go about changing the tax regime for these companies to sort of fix the problem that we perceive there to be. Does that mean they're less dedicated to that concept? Is that your So that opinion? was my uh, initial thought thought. I think they they're, they floated it out there as something they want to do, but they know it's very difficult to do. And maybe they're not so sure about how to do it. And they want to sort of hear from the, from the public. But I kind of thought maybe they're less dedicated to it. But then I began to think they're very dedicated to it because we started to hear the prime minister and the finance minister publicly declare, no, this, we are tending to follow through on that. It's just, we want to go through a process and make sure we get the rules right. Now, that being said, They've, they've put forward this consultation period, which ended October 2nd. And I think it's fair to say they've received a lot of consultations from various industry groups and, and others that are suggesting that they don't like this idea of increasing the passive income tax rate. I wonder if, which, if any, of the real estate groups would have been very vocal about this. I know that obviously there has been a lot of opposition. Do you know off the top of your mind, which one of the various real estate lobby groups would have been vocal or involved in that? I, I don't know for sure. I know uh, in other tax change situations in the past, we've been involved with RealPAC. So sure. they might have they made must have a been. submission. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. So so let's keep going down that trail. So so what are they paying right now? If I, that passive investment through the corporation, what's the, what's the current tax so, rate, or, you know, effective tax rate once they take that money? Sure. So the, so the current rate on the, on the income is still... It's presently very high. It's it's fifty percent inside the corporation, but that kind of consists of two components. There's a permanent rate of about twenty percent, and a and a, what we call a refundable rate of about thirty percent. So when the corporation distributes the earnings from the pa- the passive income earnings in the future and pays it up as a taxable dividend to the shareholder, mm-hmm. the corporation will recover the if if they pay enough of a dividend, the thirty percent refundable portion. And the shareholder will pay a tax approximately equal to that amount, such that 
the additional tax liability of flowing the money out to the individual isn't isn't very high. Relative. So it's almost a wash between the corporation and the individual. And, yeah. It effectively ends up being fifty percent right. of, of the earned of the earned income. Absolutely, and that's and that's very intentional. The concept there is our tax rules have always said we don't want people to be motivated to hold investments in a corporation versus holding them personally. If they choose to hold them in a corporation, that's fine, but the all-in effective rate of tax should be comparable. Right. Okay. So so they're not suggesting that was wrong, but there's what's suggesting is the the base of the investment, the capital of the investment, the corporate private business owner had an advantage that person had an advantage because their their dollars were taxed at that business income in the first place as at a 26.5% mm-hmm. rate. So so it's the ba- they're trying to they're trying to jack up the rates on the passive income that are that is derived from investments, investment capital that was funded by earnings tax at the lower corporate rate. So they're they're trying to they say it's it's we're we're troubled by the fact that the corporation has a higher base of investments versus what the individual employee would have had. So the way to rectify that is through taxing the income inside the corporation at a higher rate. So can we just keep going down? Maybe a real try to try to use a real world example. I'm a I'm a an office building owner, right? And every year I'm collecting a million dollars in rents, paying five hundred thousand dollars in expenses after recoveries. You know, I'm I'm bringing in sort of a net cash flow of five hundred thousand dollars, and that sits as sort of cash in my corporation. How would that be taxed, right? And how does that that sort of situation? Let's use that scenario uh, in an example of what their what their what the existing tax structure is, and and what their what the implications are of, of a change. Sure. So that so that's an interesting one because you're talking about rental income. Now rental income in some cases would be active business income taxed at the twenty six and a half percent rate, or sometimes it would be passive income taxed at the roughly fifty percent rate with a refundable mechanism. What's, I the, talked about. what's the definition between so the distinction? It, it goes to what's called the six empl- or five or more full time employee test. Okay. Okay. So if a corporation has more than five full-time employees working throughout the year on activities related to the earning of that rental income on that, in your case, one property, mm-hmm. then the rents from that property will be taxed at the lower active business rate of 26.5%. Okay. Now, as you can imagine, if you're holding sort of one apartment building, one office building, it's unlikely you would get there. And it has to be your your employee, it has to be employees of that company or- So no third-party asset right, manager with 600 right. employees can qualify. That's right, that doesn't, okay. right. So it effectively has to be your, the, the company's employees or related company's employees. But the bigger players, right? The the bigger real estate operator, commercial operators- Oh, so you, you, you own 10 buildings, so, so yeah. you have a bit of a team that, they, that helps manage that. Sure, so they they would not, they would continue to pay the biz, they would, they would be taxed at, at active business rates. As compared to your example, sort of the the startup person who's building up their career as a real estate operator, they're going to be taxed at the investment income rate. Okay, so that that's no, nothing's really changing between those two concepts. That okay. that's going to continue going forward. Okay, but it is but it is interesting to note that there's a big rate difference under the existing rules. Mm-hmm. So how does this so keep going through this? What what would be the investment income then? So like if I take that five hundred thousand dollars and want to take it, give it to myself. Am I, is anything implicated, or is, are, the, are these tax changes implicating, you know, or, or impacting the way that I would access that profit that has been earned that year? Only if the investment was originally funded by earnings that the corporation had from business income tax at the twenty six and a half percent rate. Okay. So again, my example of the condo person, condo developer, developer who's got. Definitely tax those business income. If that person sets aside some capital to acquire an income-producing asset to hold long-term as, say, a retirement plan or what have you, under the new rules, it would seem that 
the investment income earned on that property is going to be taxed at a very high rate. Mm. So, so now let's talk about let's talk about timing here. Okay, one thing that they've made clear in their submission in the in the paper they put out in July and they publicly reiterated since is any additional tax rates that they intend to bring into passive income. They don't want those to apply to what they say are existing passive investments, and they say they want the the new tax rates to apply on investment income on a go forward basis. And, and just to further clarify that, they've said the tax so the te- the new tax rates shouldn't apply to existing investments or future income earned from existing passive investments. Okay, hmm. now we don't know exactly timing wise what that would mean. Remember, we haven't seen draft legislation on this part of the rules. We might get it, you know, it might, today's October 4th. Who knows? I'd be very surprised, but it could be introduced tomorrow. Hmm. Introduced today. Yeah. But even uh, so, it would be tough, I think, to hit the calendar start of the year. I, I should be an obvious I, choice. Yeah. A lot of the rule changes that they talked about, they said will take effect January 1st, 2018 onward. Some of the rule changes, they said, take effect immediately, July 18th onward. The passive income regime, I think if it comes in, no way of knowing for sure. My personal guess is it would take effect January 18th onward. So I think there's a, now that being said, given all the media attention that we've heard lately, maybe they'll choose to push that down the road a little bit. I don't know, but it does seem through their statements that there's an opportunity for people to perhaps build up their investment base inside their corporations in the short term and have start earning passive investments that wouldn't be subject to these rules going forward. But then after that, you're effectively locked into your investment. Would it not inhibit yeah. transfers of real estate within the industry and investment in other properties? Yeah, I suspect it would inhibit those things, but that's where we'll need to see how the legislation, if it comes in, ultimately reads. Is it possible they would allow owner of an apartment building to sell that and replace it with an existing apartment, another apartment building and have the income earned at at the existing passive income rates, maybe. That, but, would that be similar to, uh, I think in the States, the 1031 exchange? That's, right. that, yeah. uh, that's, where, that's what's yeah. going through my head right now. Probably probably dangerous of me to speculate as to how they might do it, but okay. all, all they've been clear about is exi- quote-unquote existing passive investments, whatever they consider that to be, Those the income from those investments wouldn't be subject to the new regime. They've been very clear about that. Now, again, they may say existing investments, they were talking, they may bring in law and say the existing investments we were talking about were only ones on July 18th. I'd be surprised because we didn't have legislation. I think it would be more likely the day that the legislation is introduced or more, I think, more appropriately on a calendar year end, like a July, January 1st, 2018 or something like that. So people are going to want to close prior to then. Perhaps if that is it's the something to, it's yeah. it's something to think about. Something to it's a it'd be a relevant consideration to lock in lock in that investment before you, know, you suspect this this legislation to be enacted. It's certainly it's it's hard to say that it's impossible to say what someone totally definitely should or shouldn't do. But it, I'd be something. It's something I'd be mindful of if I were in a position or if someone were in a position to acquire an income producing asset inside their corporation. I think the timing uh, consideration here is very significant. Do you want to talk about refinance? Okay, so this came up in our chat, right? Mm-hmm. So certainly under the existing rules in Canada, people that are borrowing and using the borrowings to incur, for using the borrowings for an income earning purpose are able to deduct their interest. So that, that's a nice advantage of, of debt under the Canadian tax rules, and that's common throughout the world. Refinancing, 
is also something that many I find many people find attractive from a from a tax perspective. So imagine a real estate owner of a of a commercial office property that is appreciated in value for many years. They they're faced with a strategic option. Perhaps I want to sell it and trigger my gains, pay my capital gains tax twenty seven percent. Maybe that maybe that's not so bad. And then what I'll do with that money, I don't know. But I that's something to think. You know, it's an option. Or what I often find is people say, I'd rather not trigger all the tax. I can refinance the property, access some cash, continue to hold the property, but use that cash for another income earning purpose. And if it's all done within the same entity, there are very minimal tax implications with that. There, there, there are really no adverse tax implications. So the, the, the borrowing, obviously there's commercial considerations related to that, creates cash that the company is able to use to invest in other income earning purposes, and they're able to deduct the interest on that borrowing. Would that fall under that the passive investment? I don't think it, I mean, well, so it could certainly use the the cash for passive, invis, passive, passive investment purposes, but it has not been suggested anywhere that that's inappropriate under the rules because all they're doing is borrowing against their own assets that they yeah. already own. It's not been, it's not something where the, the source of the capital was derived from business earnings tax at the lower rate. So nothing seems, they, that doesn't seem to be something they're, suggesting is inappropriate or something they're intending to change. It's uh, somewhat alarming when you think of the implications in terms of what it could do to the market. But again, I guess the big question mark is we're waiting to see the legislation, the actual the actual nuts and bolts of it. Absolutely. So some of it we've seen, we suspect there'll be some changes, but the passive income one, absolutely. That is, a. I think it's useful to talk about all of these considerations. It's useful to interpret what they've said publicly through their paper and, and other means because Many people may want to restructure their affairs or make investment decisions, anticipating changes that we think may be coming. <laughs> That's very cryptic, right? But and, it, and it's hard to do it, but it certainly, it takes time to sort of process all the, even in a normal scenario, it takes time to process mm-hmm. all these investment decisions. But with this possible tax change overhanging, you can, and a possible change happening very, very soon, perhaps into the year or sooner, you can see why people want to be focused on this and why it's attracting a lot of attention. Can you talk about what you're seeing some of your, your clients doing with regards to their real estate portfolio yeah, to, to potentially guard against this? Well, my clientele is mixed. I act for REITs and private equity real estate funds mm-hmm. and other large operators. And m- many of them, in a, in a way, certainly at the operating entity level, wouldn't be affected by mm-hmm. this. But then perhaps in an upper tier entity where they're, call it, their personal profits derived from the business mm-hmm. are taxed, they, they, they might be impacted by to some extent. I mean, there there are things we're looking at. I talked about the the five or more employee test, mm-hmm. right? So that's one where you might have a family with a portfolio of of real estate, income producing real estate, right, earning rents, but they may not qualify. They might have more than five full time employees, quote unquote, in their business, but they might not be in the right structure. They might not have them all in one company. They might not have all the real estate in one company. So in some cases, we're looking to sort of restructure their affairs to fit into the rules as they currently exist, such that rental income that would otherwise be taxed at the 50% passive rate potentially could be taxed at a lower active business income rate. So that rather than having all your assets, let's say you're, you're a family that owned 10 assets all under individual you know, numbered companies that are, that are not linked, you're saying restructure that, put them under yeah, one parent company, so yeah, to speak. Absolutely. That's something to think about. Other people are saying, okay, well, I have, you know, I'm not in a position where I own a 
bunch of real estate myself, but maybe I'm in the business. Maybe I get, maybe I've made some money. I want to invest it. What's something I can invest in that will be like an investment, but won't be, won't give me passive income. Well, there are real estate investment vehicles out there. No question that a person can invest in that will pay them under the current rules. And I don't anticipate it will change active income. So they, they, Can you give an examples? What kind of real estate investment? Well, let's say, let's, I don't want to name names. If I start naming names, I'll forget someone. Yeah, but I mean, sure. let, let's say, for instance, someone's an equity provider for people that invest in a condo projects. Right. So those profits would be. You know, becoming, becoming a limited partner in a, in a, in a, in a an LPGP at, structure for um, development purposes. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's a lot of my business is acting for people setting those structures right. up. And it, yeah, so certainly a lot of it's speculative real estate development and definitely the profits are, are active business income. And then, but does uh, not get taxed on that active investment. Does not get ta- get taxed sorry, as an active investment. So even the limited partner would get taxed as an as active. Oh, sorry, the other way around. Not yeah. not taxed as a passive investment. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and there's been no suggestion that that's something that would change. That would be people. I find people are surprised when they say, "Oh, you're telling me I could be a two percent limited partner and and be taxed as active business earnings through my partnership share of profits." And the answer is absolutely yes. That that's if, if they, it goes to the underlying character of of the actual limited partnership and what they're do, the character of their income. So mm-hmm. if it's profits from speculative real estate investment, then definitely it's active business income. So there's been no suggestion that's going to change. I think a change of that kind would be also we're already got we've already got right. challenging supply yeah. constraints in the marketplace <laughs> no, right now. Yeah, right? Absolutely yeah. right. So yeah. so th- so those are the types of things some people are asking. And I've listen. I've had I've had conversation with people that are very concerned about the overall magnitude of these changes and, and suggest maybe there are other jurisdictions in the world where they might want to set up shop. But, you know, to, to, to emigrate from Canada to, say, the U.S., it certainly comes with significant tax implications. So you, you get, if you, if you cease to become a Canadian resident and you leave, you're taxed on, your, on your, the value of your assets when you leave. And exiting your entire portfolio and revesting down there sounds yeah. like a massive undertaking. Massive undertaking, yeah. right? But to some extent... I've heard people suggest that that may be that a solution. Might, yeah. No, I know that. That I think a lot of people are having reactions to to what's been put out there, and it's important that we all wait and see what ultimately happens with with these rules and what happens in the future. So it, it could be it could be reactionary, similar to the way that uh, celebrities during every election cycle like to claim that they're going to move if their candidate doesn't win and no, they never exactly. move. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't think we've seen any of those yet, have we? No, no. <laughs> lots of declarations, very little uh, moving trucks. So what do you what do you think personally? Like just you know, aside from all the the, the details, like mm-hmm. you know, generally, you know, you you, know, you live and breathe this stuff. Like, yeah. what, what do you think? There's any value? You think there's any value to what the government's trying to do, or do you think it's just it's it's you know ultimately going to have negative impacts across the board? No, I think definitely there's some some value to what they're trying to do. I, I think they're trying to address a, a, an unreasonable difference between the highest marginal personal rate and the corporate rate, and they're trying to fix this this. The somewhat broken, yeah, <laughs> Sorry, the yeah. somewhat broken system. I think in some of the specific rules, I think I would tend to see the merit in in what they are proposing. But I think, and others have said this, changes of this kind probably need to be part of a bigger tax reform because the net revenues, like we we all know, the government needs revenues to to fund the services and what have you and and we're in a deficit situation and that can't continue I would I wouldn't think I'm not an economist but it doesn't seem like a good thing but the they've said that the additional revenues that they would get out of some of these measures are 250 million dollars a year certainly a big number but I don't know if it's big enough to justify the potential risks to the economy that I seem to be hearing about so I think 
there's some flaws with our system. There always will be, but there's some fundamental flaws right now that I think these are taking steps to 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 fix. But they they're only getting us halfway there, and in fact, maybe not even halfway there because they're creating other problems. So we need, I think, bigger reform to to happen. Perhaps something to lower the personal tax rate. That's yeah. probably tough to do. Rather than bring the corporate tax yeah. rate up to the individual level. Yeah, but I I do wonder what what the future holds for for tax systems, because you hear, and it's not just real estate, but you hear about artificial intelligence and automation and, and perhaps people, you know, our children won't work to the extent that have jobs to the extent we did. So how, how does a government fund the rest of society if you have fewer people working, right? And fewer companies perhaps. Yeah. So I think there are big challenges ahead and that to some extent may involve ta- some tax increases and Countries will take different approaches to it. Some might get it right, some might get it wrong. It's never going to be perfect. So I, I think this is, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear more discussions like this over the course of our careers. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. If your head is spinning, which it likely should be at the end of a discussion like this, the best advice is to talk to a tax professional like John, and we'll put his contact information up there if you got specific questions about how this impacts your portfolio or your profession. Yeah, it's a lot to digest and a lot to understand. It's, it's a lot of moving pieces, right? A ton of moving pieces. It's there. complicated. Yeah. So it's important to talk to a professional, talk to your accountant. Some of these decisions, it's more than just your accountant, it's your investment advisor, other people. It's, it's, there's a lot to think about, and, and it takes time to, to assess what's, what's happened and what's happening. And how it's, impa- how it's going to impact your business. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks very much, John. That was wonderful. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. We always like to end off the guest segment by asking for two pieces of advice you would give yourself if you traveled back to 1999 and you're starting out your career again. What two items would you give to get where you got a little faster? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, it's important to aim high. So I've always built my career with a long-term view and, and had, had sort of goal, long-term goals. And I, my tax career, I'm proud of the fact that I built it step by step by step. And, and I, I made a decision early on to focus on tax and to focus on real estate, and that's paid off for me. But I think probably if I could do it again, I would have aimed a little bit higher. And, and now I'm having to recalibrate some of my goals and, and figure out where we go from here. But it's important that people dream big. Others have said that, and, and I, I believe in that considerably because it's amazing if you really go out every day and apply yourself and and build your career up what you can accomplish in the long term so it's good to it's good to dream big from the beginning so that's one and in terms of the rest of my career i mean i'll say this again while i focused on while i focused on real estate it was my my understanding of the actual industry probably i it's my knowledge has quadrupled in the last sort of 5 6 years where i became a little bit more client focused. I spent the first part of my career focusing on the tax rules and then now I'm more focused on the in, applying those rules to the industry. And I think that that's worked, but I, I, I can't stress enough the importance to people getting in as a service provider, let's say in the real estate sector, to really getting out there and knowing the people in the industry, building long-term relationships for people that will rise up in their business alongside yourself over the course of a couple of decades because those long-term relationships can really pay off in the future. Yeah, without a doubt. 
And just to your point about improving your knowledge outside of your specific specialty, that would be something Aaron and I are doing in terms of learning about tax in this case. You know, we're not tax professionals. I think I'm more confused than I was at the start of this. Uh-oh. That's not good. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. No. Yeah. Well, th- guys, it's a great podcast that you have. I've enjoyed I've listened to one of the episodes I talked about. I think it's a great thing that you're doing and it's, it's great for the industry. Yeah, it's great fun to do it. Up next, we've got the news. And this article will be applicable to virtually everybody who works in a facet of commercial real estate. It was in the Real Estate News Exchange. An Avison Young report that Canada, or specifically Canada's CRE sector, is awash in capital. I think that's definitely true on the debt side and the equity side. And as a result, it's possible that we're heading towards a record-breaking year as investors continue to buy assets. And that's in the face of you know rising interest rates and maybe some headwinds. People are still unbelievably active. So it's such a liquid market. I, I'm not sure what you see, John, uh, from your your perspective. But First National is sitting here, you know, with with on the financing side. It seems like every every day there's new players coming to the market, new partnerships mm-hmm. joining, but larger and bigger scaled operations. You know, mm-hmm. we're seeing we're seeing major major real estate investors combining equity, combining forces, and, and building even larger yes. uh, developments. It's just it's just nuts right now, and that's that's across the country. I think you know I, I, we're seeing in Montreal there's some growth going on. Halifax got a ton of development on the go. Yes. Certainly, of course, Toronto, Vancouver. But you know, we're even seeing that Calgary is, and Edmonton are slowly but surely kind of seem to be coming around. You know, I think they've, I think they've hit the bottom. You know, so to speak of that that of that turn. You know, Winnipeg, there's a bunch of development going on. It's just across the country. It, it just seems to be there's a lot of people with a lot of money looking to just get involved in real estate. Yeah. No, absolutely, and we see it on on a global scale as well. But certainly, a lot of my clients are pooling capital from a variety of different sources and putting them into a variety of different real estate investments, but. Typically these days, it's more and more across border. Normally this week, I'm in I'm in Munich for the Expo Royale, which is one of the biggest real estate conferences in the world. So, you know, Brian, our my my partner, so he's he's over there this week with a few of our future clients. podcast guests, by the way. Yeah, no, yeah. he's a good, great, inter- very entertaining guy. And when we go to these conferences, we meet we meet a lot of institutional and other private family office investors that are extremely interested in breaking into the Canadian investment market. They they found us a bit they found the Canadian market a bit expensive in the past, sure. but but nevertheless, some are are sort of forcing their way in and making either LP investments or other investments. I acted for a group that had one of the biggest commercial real estate transactions of the year, Hmm. a foreign buyer earlier in 2017, and they were not really on the Canadian radar whatsoever. So they kind of caught people by surprise with their acquisition. And then we're also seeing a lot of Canadians invest into the States, doing a variety of different projects. We've got a client that we act for that's done a number of investments in in Germany and Hmm. other places in Europe. And when I travel, oftentimes to the global KPMG real estate conferences, I meet all of our sort of tax people that focus on real estate in all the different countries, and they all know the Canadian pension plans very well because the Canadian pension all plans have over been the big, place. Yep. big buyers of foreign real estate in Europe and Asia and elsewhere. Trying to chase a little, little better yield and then get it home, I think, yeah. is the, uh, the concept. There's actually a couple of numbers to run through in the article that I found interesting. 2016 was $28.4 billion, and the first half of this year, we were 20, 29% ahead of that. The investment sales by city, this surprised me. Number one was Vancouver at seven point eight billion, and Toronto was six point five billion. I would have 
I would have picked Toronto all day long to be ahead of that ahead of that number, just due to size of the city. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know the asset value here on a per square foot basis is lower than Vancouver, but we have so much more of it. So I was kind of surprised to see that. And then uh, Montreal, Calgary, Edmonton, Ottawa, not surprising. Vancouver and Toronto accounted for seventy five percent of total investment, and that's just driven by valuation, by valuation, and foreign interest is directed almost entirely at those two cities. Mm-hmm. Vancouver investments up 75% year over year, which is a massive, massive number. The top investment sector was office at 5.3 billion. It's up 16% year over year. Retail sector was second with 5.1 billion. Obviously it's been disrupted by e-commerce, but still holding a strong position. Industrial comes in at third. It's up 35% year over year. Fourth is the multifamily sector, you know, first national specialty. So I hate, I hate to see it at the bottom of that stack, but uh, that makes sense. Know. It's there aren't as many big ticket, big ticket scale item, big ticket scale assets like there are in the other the other, yeah, the other asset classes. Yeah, it's tough to find a twenty million dollar building, let alone you know billion dollar office towers. It's, well, I just think yeah. of like if one one major one major mall exchanges and it's a billion dollar transaction. Sure. There are not a billion dollar transactions in the apartment space. So, yeah, yeah. And then the the last the least traded asset class was. ICI land, $2.1 billion worth. And that's down, the sales volume is down 11%, which is actually kind of surprising because I think this time last year, everybody's talking about how land was just you know on fire. Not that it isn't now, but just it's not trading. Mm-hmm. But that's the lineup. So I guess, you know, wherever you fall in that kind of hierarchy of asset classes, it sounds like everybody's doing well. So a lot of people will be at that $200,000 threshold you there talked you about for taxation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so call John. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We want to thank John again for coming on. It was a very informative podcast. I would suggest people listen to it twice <laughs> with a pen and paper handy to make it understood. I want to thank the listeners as always. You know, if you enjoyed the episode, please pass it on to a to a friend who could benefit from all this tax knowledge. We're active on all the social media platforms, so you know, look for us there. It's on the webpage. We'd love to connect and uh, interact that way. But thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. Thanks for having me, Adam. It was awesome. I'll look forward to listening to future podcasts. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.